Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe today is Friday and we have completed another week. What's ironic is the fact that at the very beginning of the week I was on the air with you guys. And what do you know, to end the week, I'm back on the air. Quite a unique coincidence, to say the least. Now, I will have to say we've uh, covered a lot of ground, given that we've done just uh, three podcast segments to the other side of the night the Carpathia, the Californian, and the night the Titanic was lost by Daniel Allen Butler. However, it is fair to say that that this uh, podcast series is really about solving a mystery of sorts. We've learned everything there is 101 to know about the Carpathia and her captain, Arthur Rostron, as well as the same for the Californian and her captain, Stanley Lord. Well, in this uh, podcast segment uh, episode, it's going to be a two-part um, series, but the episode uh, for uh, this podcast segment has to do with the Titanic. Not just so much with the Titanic, but really about but how uh, the Titanic evolves. You know, in other words, we're going to learn about the name of the, not so much the name of the company that, um, that, that owned the ship, but how she went about uh, being uh, built and how... The Titanic herself went out onto the waters on her maiden voyage, and how she um, responded to warnings, and how she thought she could outmaneuver what was in front of her, but, but sadly, it, as we all know, it was too late. But what we will be learning about in this uh, podcast series also, or segment also, I should say, is how um, one ship learns of the, um, learns of what has happened with Titanic and how that ship, being its captain and crew, go about preparing for what lies ahead. After all, if they've been uh, given, war if they've been informed from the Titanic that they're in trouble, and it's not just 101 trouble. The captain and the crew of this ship have to do everything there is in their power to modify the circumstances on their ship so that when they come to the aid of the, of the Titanic, they will be able to uh, bring um, survivors from the lifeboats on board their ship and they have to obviously go above and beyond to make sure that those uh, passengers who are ferried off of Titanic and are on the lifeboats are going to seek the proper uh, care that they need. Of course, if I keep on uh, rambling, then I might as well be giving away more information than I probably should be as to what is going to be in store because uh, a lot of things are going to unravel um, leading up to uh, April 14th into the um, morning hours of the 15th of 1912 for Titanic. But the irony to it all is that in the days leading up to April the 14th, while there were a lot of uneventful things going on along the waters in terms of um, no breaking news aboard ships, it is fair to say that um, that the Californian 
as well as uh, that the Carpathia have received their fair share of uh, ice war of uh, warnings from other ships regarding uh, the presence of icebergs and uh, fields of ice. But the thing is, is that while there are uneventful things going on for perhaps the first week or for the first couple of days, what we don't realize is that within a few short hours, so many other things will happen that will ultimately make the difference between life and death. So, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and let's get ready to go uh, for the first part of the uh, podcast segment on uh, Titanic. As I said earlier, it's going to be a two-part series. This will be part one of two. So here's our first leadoff question. Uh, come late evening around um, half past 11 p.m. on April the four- on April the 14th, 1912, where was Titanic and adjacent to nearby land? You know, it's one thing for a ship to be out on the waters but but because a ship is out on the waters, it doesn't automatically mean that land will be nearby. In the case with the Titanic, late in the evening on April the 14th of 1912, Titanic herself was 300 miles southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia. So she really is out in the heart of the North Atlantic Ocean, and given that she's 300 miles southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia. If something happens to her, yes, you know, her wireless operators can certainly reach out to other ships that are either, say, 30 miles out or or somewhere out along the waters. You know, her wireless operators can reach for assistance, but from the looks of things, you know, from our previous podcast, we learned that uh, the Californian's wireless operator uh, shut off his system at around 11 o'clock. So it, it tells us right away that not all ships are going to be on the um, air in terms of wireless radio communication into the wee hours after midnight. We must keep in mind that even in 1912, there are no laws on the books that state that wireless operators have to have uh, service connections on for 24 hours. I almost wonder if it will take a tragedy for laws and regulations, rules, for any of that stuff to change. More often than not, history has shown that uh, when a tragedy occurs, there there has to be a change in policies to ensure that what and to ensure that whatever tragedy did happen doesn't repeat itself again going forward in the future. So Titanic's maiden voyage was bound for New York from uh, Southampton, England. Titanic was part of the White Star Line. The White Star Line was a British shipping company which came about from a packet company that was about to collapse. And whenever you hear of packet company, think of mail. So, more often than not, uh, packet boats would have been smaller-sized boats whose purposes would have been, say, uh, transporting uh, people from point A to point B. Uh, the same for transporting goods, but even trans... How about delivering mail, you know, from point A to point B along the water? So, this packet company was about to collapse, and uh, like the Cunard line, White Star itself 
provided both passenger and cargo services. I'll mention this again here um, soon, but um, I'll mention it now. White Star advertised their services with an emphasis on offering comfortable passages for upper-class travelers. Okay, upper-class travelers, you know, the uh, first-class people, including immigrants. You know, those whom are wanting to come to the new world, being America, to start a new life. So usually when we think of immigrants... It's usually a combination between second and third class passengers. Now, uh, whereas the Cunard line was founded in 1840, White Star was founded in 1845 in Liverpool, England by John Pilkington and Henry Wilson. And the original starting focus of White Star line had to do with the United Kingdom-Australia trade which was further enhanced due to discovery of gold in Australia around 1851. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have been alive um, in Australia around 1851 and gold has been discovered. I mean, it's kind of like the equivalent of the, uh, of the gold rush that sent many of people uh, from the East Coast all the way out west to what we know as California with uh, Sutter's Mill. And of course, you know, there were people who did strike it rich, but only a few did. Most people who went there were lucky if they found it, if they were able to find scant traces of gold, but very few struck it rich. And I'm wondering if it's probably the, probably could have been the same thing in Australia as well. I'm not 100% sure, but it is possible. However, uh, just when the boom and the success of any company goes unprecedented, there's always going to be a low point. And for the White Star Line, starting in 1868, although I will say um, between uh, 1867 and, 18, and early 1868, the White Star Line uh, was struggling uh, financially. And it was struggling financially largely in part because it went into bankruptcy as a result of outstanding uh, mass debts. A gentleman by the name of Thomas Ismay, he would be the man whom reinvented the White Star Line by offering service between Liverpool, England, and New York, including overseeing that all ships be built by Harland and Wolfe, a shipyard uh, stationed in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I'll mention Harland and Wolf again here soon, but they are going to become a, um, a real heavy hitter for the White Star Line in terms of uh, building ships, ships that will um, have not only uh, European recognition, but international uh, fame and recognition. But thanks to Thomas Ismay's um, presence and stepping up to the plate, and had it not been for Thomas Ismay, I do believe that the White Star Line would have... Uh, would have met a, an ultimate uh, fateful demise. But starting in 1868, the White Star Line began its official run along the North Atlantic between Liverpool and New York with uh, building close to uh, six identical ships. These ships were the Oceanic, the Atlantic, the Baltic, Republic, Celtic to Adriatic. So, you know, these might not be the grandest of ships, 
but if but given that they given that the white star has uh, built um, six identical ships they have a better sense of identity in terms of offering service going from liverpool to new york and back vice versa now come uh, the beginning of the 20th century in the first decade by 1907 had White Star Line faced major challenges from main rivals like Cunard? Yes. Considering in 1907 Cunard launched both the Lusitania and the Mauritania, with the end result of each ship being the fastest passenger boat along the North Atlantic. Another Ismay um, figure is going to step up. His name is J. Bruce Ismay, or what we, um, where others would know as uh, James Bruce Ismay. His name's going to be mentioned um, probably more in this uh, podcast series. I first learned about him when I um, when I uh, saw James Cameron's movie uh, Titanic. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about James Bruce Ismay until I saw that uh, movie. So James Bruce Ismay is the son of Thomas Ismay. And he decides he's now taken over the same role that his father had. For James Bruce Ismay, his focus is on size versus speed. And he went about proposing that a new class of lines be focused on promoting comfort and luxury. Well, it's one thing to have a grand size ship. But in order to, to be successful in promoting your grand size ships... They need to offer comfort and luxury. But isn't that, isn't that what Cunard has offered with Lusitania and Mauritania? Sure. I mean, they are, you know, large ships that are not, that not only focused on speed, but also on size. And they offer comfort and luxury. But remember, folks, the competition is very intense. So for the White Star Line... Given that these challenges they're facing, they know that if they're going to, if they want to stay in the game, they're going to have to uh, continuously reinvent the wheel, and they're also going to have to do some things that um, that are different, that are grand, and I hate to say this, but it, it could also mean cutting corners that over time could backfire with regards to the safety of passengers aboard a ship. And, you know, it's one thing to cut a corner, but if you cut too many corners, other uh, ramifications can happen down the road where where if you have this notion that, oh, you know, we're invincible and nothing can happen and all of a sudden, all of a sudden something does happen, how do you respond? How do you uh, compensate for the loss of lives if, in fact, that does happen? So there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of setbacks with expanding if boundaries aren't uh, properly addressed. The Titanic will be a part of this new class of liners. Titanic is taking the place of an existing uh, ship known as the RMS Majestic, which dated back to 1890. Titanic will have a sister, a twin sister ship known as the Olympic, who will be taking the place of the RMS Teutonic. And remember what RMS stands for, folks? Royal Mail Steamer? The RMS Teutonic uh, dated from 1889. Harland and Wolf, 
the long will have a long established relationship with the White Star Line, and their relationship to the White Star Line dated back to 1867. Just over 40 years before Titanic began its maiden voyage. Now, when Titanic was built, beginning of, beginning of March 1909, what would become her total cost? Does anybody want to take a guess? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not in the billions in 1909. I learned this a long time back, and I was blown away at how much it cost to build her. But, of course, like anything else... Um, Depending on when something is made or depending on when one was living, the cost factors are obviously relevant to the time in which somebody would have lived or in which something that was built, you know, took place. So when Titanic was first being built in March of 1909 and when she was completely um, finished in terms of her construction, the final cost came out to $7.5 million dollars which was a lot of money during the early part of the 20th century to build a ship of her size. In today's uh, modern world, she would probably cost around uh, $200 million or more. Well, Titanic was 882 feet long. That is the distance of more than four city blocks. The ship itself had three million rivets. Now, the word Titanic itself, or the name, I should say, comes from titans of Greek mythology. Titanic herself, given, you know, she's now all of a sudden becoming the largest ocean vessel the world has ever seen. She's now surpassed Lusitania and Mauritania. So at 882 feet long, how many passengers do you think this ship could accommodate? Well, I know she could accommodate over 2,000, but she can accommodate up to 2,435 passengers with a crew of 892 and 20 lifeboats. You know, I'm sure a lot of us are now scratching our heads and saying, 20 lifeboats for 24, if there were a total of 2,435 passengers aboard the ship and there are only 20, and there are only 20 lifeboats, that just, that just doesn't add up. The numbers don't add up. And I agree, but we will soon learn more as to why the number 20 in terms of lifeboats was such an, uh, how do I call it, was such a unique number or why that uh, clause or provision had, put it, had been put into place. Because I'm thinking to myself already, well, you know, if there's 20 lifeboats and you have a voyage where there's over 2,000 passengers... How could you be assured that if in the event something goes wrong, that everybody on board the ship would have an equal opportunity to ensure that they would be placed onto a lifeboat and that their lives would not be in, put into grave danger? Just some of the many um, unforeseen factors. Given Edward J. Smith was Titanic's captain, whom, whom served... Whom served below him officer-wise? And, so, and the reason I'm mentioning these officers is because they, some of them 
will be mentioned uh, more than once, not only in this podcast segment, but in other uh, podcast segments down the road. I will tell you this, the uh, Titanic, um, Captain Edward J. Smith had six officers below him. Will Murdoch was the first officer, Charles Lightoller the second, Herbert Pittman, third officer, Joseph Boxhall, fourth officer, Harold Lowe, fifth officer, James Moody, sixth. Well, you know, think about this. I mean, it's not so much that Titanic is 882 feet long, but, you know, this is a ship that's got over, that can accommodate almost just over 2,400 passengers. I think it would be fair to say that you're going to need a lot of officers below the captain uh, on uh, voyages like these. Yes, Carpathia and Californian were much were, were smaller than Titanic, and yes, they still had adequate uh, officers, but not all. But neither one of those uh, ships, in, in, in terms of their crew, had six officers below. Now, uh, first officer Murdoch, Will Murdoch, uh, served under Captain Edward Smith for two months aboard the Olympic, uh, being Titanic's sister ship. The Olympic um, made her maiden voyage before Titanic did. Captain Smith's career with White Star began at age 27, which probably would have been around the early 1880s, because by 1912 he's, you know, close to about 60 years of age. His career with the White Star Line was marked by unlimited series of successes. And it is very fair to say, and I know I've mentioned this from a previous podcast, that um, a captain or captains of a passenger vessel on the North Atlantic run were, were expected to interact socially with first-class passengers aboard. And as for Captain Smith, he was very well uh, respected and liked by um, all first-class passengers that he came in contact with. So... For all of these first-class passengers, they admired him so much to where they preferred booking across, where they preferred booking crossings on ships that he commanded, most notably the newer ones, the Olympic and the Titanic. Who is Frederick Fleet? I don't know if many of you all probably know of Frederick Fleet, but I've known about him for some time uh, through books that I read years ago on Titanic, as well as uh, watching uh, James Cameron's movie, as well as uh, documentaries uh, that I've seen from time to time uh, through Smithsonian, um, through the the Smithsonian uh, channel, I should say, uh, regarding uh, documentaries that are done about Titanic. But the uh, question is, uh, who is Frederick Fleet? Well, he was a crew person aboard the Titanic whom held the post of lookout watchman. He was um, one of probably at least six men whom uh, rotated um, shifts and with regards to uh, being assigned uh, as a lookout watchman. So for a lookout watchman, his, the duties would have included spotting unusual objects along the waters which would have posed as hazards to ships, including Titanic folks. Yes, I know everybody is saying that the ship is unsinkable. Nothing could happen to her. She, you know, she, no object could interfere with her. No object could damage her. Only in a perfect world. But Mother Nature 
has some surprises. Not only up her sleeve, but she's going to throw a, a curveball at Titanic. One that will change, forever change the course of history. So, for uh, lookout watchmen, yes. The duties would have included spotting unusual objects along the waters that would have posed as hazards to uh, ships, to a ship's well-being, uh, both short and long-term. 11.40 p.m. on April the 14th of 1912, Lookout Frederick Fleet spotted another, spotted an object straight ahead, which appeared small, but grew in size as Titanic moved forward. Frederick Fleet became very, very suspicious of what he saw, so he did the right thing. He gave three rings with the pull of a large bronze bell. Three rings was a signal for object ahead. Then he grabs the telephone nearby where he reported to the bridge with the following, Iceberg, right ahead! Okay, 6th uh, Officer James Moody, who received uh, the call from Frederick Fleet, relayed the uh, relayed uh, Frederick Fleet's message to First Officer Will Murdoch, whom ordered the following, A hard a starboard, full speed ahead on both engines, with the command of turning the wheel as far to the left as possible, because this object that the Titanic was um, about to face was really in the center. It wasn't in the traditional central point, but it was center enough to where, by turning the wheel to the left, that for op First Officer Will Murdoch, he would he was automatically going to assume that by turning the the wheel hard to the left that they would completely miss this object well frederick fleet heard a metallic crippling sound up on the bridge a low trembling motion sound is felt in the midst of icebergs passing. Folks, Titanic struck an iceberg. The inevitable has happened. First, First Officer uh, Murdoch immediately pulled the switch which closed the watertight doors to the boiler and engine rooms. Captain Smith is, is in his uh, quarters, being his cabin, but he knew afterwards that something wasn't right, given that his cabin experienced trembling, experienced a lot of shaking, shaking that he had probably never heard of before, but it was just, um, it wasn't right. So immediately, Officer Murdoch was the first to advise Captain Smith of what had occurred. The Titanic struck an iceberg. This is not what Captain Smith would have wanted. And now, you know, it's bad enough now that the ship has struck an iceberg, but for Captain Smith, he's got to, he's going to have to assess the damage. You know, we're not talking about a, a little dinky little scrape, folks. We're not talking about like a little fender bender where a car is sometimes... Uh, will 
you know, collide with one another if they, you know, get too close up to one another from, uh, from behind and all. But we shall uh, see here in a moment um, just how extensive the damage will be. Who was Thomas Andrews? He was the Titanic's builder. In other words, he uh, laid out the entire blueprints of the Titanic for Harland and Wolf and the um, thousands of men whom went about uh, building her. So besides being the um, Titanic's uh, chief um, blueprint, besides being the Titanic's chief uh, architect, Andrews himself was a British businessman and a shipbuilder. He was the managing director of Harland and Wolfe. In the midst of um, finding out that the Titanic has hit an iceberg, he went about checking what's called the commutator. The commutator is a device that determines if a ship has lost stability on the port or the starboard uh, sides, including the bow and the stern. So in other words, Thomas Andrews needs to figure out if the Titanic is listing. If she is listing, then she is no longer, then she is, if she's starting to list, that means that her means of being able to stay afloat is not, um, is not going to be, um, viable. Um, it's not going, it's not good. Anytime a ship starts to list, that means her, uh, means of being able to stay afloat is on borrowed time. So, the commutator, per Thomas Andrews, per Thomas Andrews's findings, showed that Titanic was losing stability five degrees to the side and two degrees down by the head. If your ship has lost stability five degrees to the side, you know five degrees may not seem like much. But if it has lost five degrees to its side, that is, um, that's bad news. It's not just 101 bad news, but it also could mean that perhaps, as I said a moment ago, this ship, I hate to say this, but I'm wondering if the Titanic is now showing signs of being on borrowed time. Thomas Andrews relays this news to Captain Smith. And Captain Smith was known to have said the following, Oh my God. Captain Smith has never experienced anything like this before. And now Captain Smith realizes that not only are he and his crew in the fight, going to be in the fight for their lives, but the same will go for just over 2,000 passengers. And the question of knowing will help come soon. Can we get a ship that isn't far away to come to our aid? So that in the end that so that in the end that there will be lives saved. Not just lives saved, but hopefully, you know, a thousand or more people's lives might be saved. Thomas Andrews and Captain Smith inspected the damage. They saw flooding in the forward cargo holds to water making its way into boiler rooms 5 and 6. 
Andrews um, advised the rest of Titanic crew that collision with the iceberg left ship's first six out of 16 watertight compartments vulnerable to ocean water. Thomas Andrews has given the ship less than two hours to live. Here's the ship that was deemed unsinkable. And nobody would have ever thought now that her, that her maiden voyage is now on the verge of becoming her last voyage. Historians know that the Titanic was designed to where if she did um, hit something like an iceberg, or if she, of course, I don't think that was really in anybody's mind that she could strike an iceberg, but if something happened and there was flooding, she was designed to stay afloat where four of her watertight bulkhead compartments, if they flooded, she could stay afloat. However, based upon her layout and all, there were gaps in these compartments. In other words, the compartments themselves weren't, uh, they weren't um, positioned to go all the way up to the top to where they could be sealed off in terms of water um, flowing over to the next compartment. So given that, um, given that there were flaws, engineering flaws with her compartment, uh, watertight compartment designs, given that she struck the iceberg, it made flooding all the more easier. Historians also know that if the Titanic had hit the iceberg straight on, she would have stayed afloat. More than likely, between two and four compartments would have flooded, but no more than four would have flooded. On the other hand, depending on how quickly she might have seen the iceberg if she had gone straight at it, who's to say that even if, if they had, that something else would have happened? You know, historians are also coming to the realization and they know that there were other internal factors wrong with Titanic. Of course, I might have to mention that in another uh, podcast. But the bottom line is that, you know, the, hitting the iceberg was probably the final straw that might have broken the camel's back for the ship. So, the fact that 6 out of 16 watertight compartments have flooded and, are, and other compartments are now vulnerable to ocean water, this ship only has uh, two hour, less than two hours to live. It's, uh, it's uh, a very dangerous uh, situation. And how many passengers were aboard Titanic, including crew, on the night of April 14th, 1912? 2,207, folks. But there were lifeboats. You know, remember we only have 20 lifeboats aboard Titanic, so that means if there are 2,207 passengers and crew, that means that there are only 1,178, that there would be lifeboats available for only 1,178 passengers. Can you believe that, folks? That means that half of the people aboard are probably going to die if help doesn't come in enough time. So these 20 lifeboats that are available, uh, 14 of them are standard uh, wooden Harland and Wolf lifeboats that had a capacity of six to hold 65 people per each boat. Then you had what were called four Engelhart. They were known as collapsible or uh, wooden bottom collapsible uh, canvas size canvas sides uh, lifeboats which could hold 47 people per boat 
At around 12.05 a.m., April the 15th, orders were issued to uncover the lifeboats and gather uh, the passengers. Captain Smith told the wireless operators about the ship's state of condition, as they were not already made aware earlier. By 12.15 a.m., Captain Smith advised the wireless operators to tap out the letters CQD, which was the International Signal for Distress. CQ refers to all stations. D for distress, followed by MGY being Titanic's call letters, including the position of where she had struck the iceberg and where she was currently at. Their position was 41.46 north longitude, 50.14 degrees west latitude. In quotations, CQD, all stations, distress, all stations, distress, Titanic, position, 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west, all stations, distress, Titanic. Frightening. I can't imagine being one of the wireless operators and having to uh, issue that international call for distress in, in terms of needing help. Did Harold Cottam, Carpathia's wireless operator, reach out to Jack Phillips, Titanic's wireless operator, shortly after midnight of April 15, 1912? Yes, Cottam's intentions were to inform Phillips about the traffic messages he had received the day before, April 14th, regarding the ice warnings, being the presence of uh, numerous bergs, or I should say icebergs and fields of ice, or ice fields. Harold, Harold Cottam got a response from Phillips, which left him utterly stunned. And, and if I was Harold Cottam, I, I would have been quite stunned myself. CQD. CQD. CQD again, folks. All stations. Distress. All stations. Distress. How about SOS? What does SOS stand for? Ship out of service. Ship out, no, save our ship. <laughs> Pardon me, folks. I meant to say save our ship, not ship out of service. SOS, SOS, save our ship. CQD, all stations distress. Titanic, come at once. We have struck a berg. It's a... CQD, old man, position 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west. Harold Cottam right away advised First Officer Dean of Titanic's message to where Dean himself then informed Captain Rostron. At 12.25 a.m., Harold Cottam sent Jack Phillips a message advising Carpathia was only 58 miles away. 58 miles away. That, you know, to us driving along the road, 58 miles doesn't seem like a long ways, but when you're out on the ocean, that, to me, 58 miles out on the ocean to, to come to the aid of another ship, it, it, it's much longer. But, but we're going to find out here soon if Carpathia really is up for this challenge. 
What was Carpathia's top speed? Well, before, well, actually, I should say, before I get to Carpathia's top speed, let's find out how Harold Captain Arthur Rostron reacts here. The first words out of Captain Rostron's mouth, I mean, he, he was stunned. He was awakened by, uh, the first off, by First Officer Dean in his uh, quarters. And uh, Captain Rostron went as far as saying, uh, please, you know, repeat what you just said, and I hope that what you just said really is true. In other words, maybe Rostron would not have wanted to have believed that that something so shocking was in fact true, but he may come to the realization, he's probably coming to the realization now that this is no joke. So the first words out of Captain Rostron's mouth after learning what happened to Titanic pertain to uh, turning his ship around. Rostron never mentioned to Cottom about inquiring whether other ships were nearby to assist the ship. Titanic's CQD alone was enough of a clear message for Captain Rostron to perform a mission like none other before. So, uh, what was, in fact, um, Carpathia's um, top speed? Her top speed was 14 knots. Titanic's top speed was at least 21, so... And, of course, you know, Titanic's a much bigger ship, so, you know, a larger ship's going to be able to uh, have uh, greater speed. So, yes, Carpathia's top speed is 14 knots. Given she was 58 miles southeast of where Titanic stood, the fastest time Carpathia could reach Titanic would be in four hours. So, if, um, if Titanic is starting to send out um, distress um, warnings or not just warnings, but messages in terms of um, getting um, help. And Titanic is four hours away, and the first um, warnings or calls for help come right after midnight. That means that Carpathia may not get to Titanic, folks, at best until sometime after 4 a.m. on April the 15th. So even the Carpathia herself is on borrowed time. But it's not going to stop Arthur Rostron and his crew, it's not going to stop them by going above and beyond the call of duty. Okay, so we know that Captain Arthur Rostron is not going to sit back and say, well, we're 58 miles away, there's nothing we can do about it, so it's your all's problem, go find another ship that's 10 to 20 miles away. Remember, folks, in 1912, remember, as I said earlier, we don't have a 24-hour wireless um, operation system where wireless operators are required to leave their systems on 24 hours. Remember earlier, as I said, uh, California's uh, wireless operator uh, closed down, Cyril Evans uh, shut off his system at 11 p.m. And he had communication with um, Harold Phillips, um, Titanic, uh, rather Jack Phillips with uh, Titanic's uh, wireless operator. And, of course, Jack Phillips um, snubbed um, Cyril Evans when Cyril Evans was trying to issue him um, warnings about the presence of icebergs and uh, fields of ice. Somewhere down the road, we're going to probably learn more about where the Californian was this entire time. I'd like to know myself. Eventually, we're going to find that out, but, but not right now. So, Captain Rostron demand is is demanding some things that he would never have asked before but he's in a very delicate situation here so he's going to have to do some things that are different but he's got to do 
he's got to do these things without um without causing um an emotional stir or causing a panic or a frenzy amongst the passengers of his ship so captain rostron for one demands that more speed out of the car he's demanding that more speed out of the carpathia take place in other words he wants carpathia to go more than 14 knots well, in order for this to happen, it's going to mean ordering all heat and hot water to passenger and crew accommodations be cut off. I can't imagine being a passenger and all of a sudden now I don't have any heat or hot water. What's going on here? Are there internal problems with this ship? That's probably what most passengers would think right away. He, um, Captain Rostron has advised First Officer Dean of what was to be done in the midst of a rescue operation. Okay, so what would need to be done? Here are some things. Get out your ship's lifeboats, should they be needed. Have clusters of electric lights placed along the ship's sides. Slings ready for raising injured passengers aboard. Canvas bags for lifting small children you know, who knows, maybe some of these things you might not use, but have them out in the event you do need them, so this way you don't look like a chicken with your head cut off trying to cross the other side of the road. Not trying to sound harsh, folks, but, you know, yes, Captain Rostron already knows, knows largely, he knows what has happened with Titanic thanks to what Officer Dean has relayed to him through the wireless operator. But Captain Rostron has to is now realizing that he needs to take every precaution there is. And believe it or not, folks, there are three surgeons aboard the Carpathia. Three surgeons, folks. So there will be therefore first, second, and third class will each have their each have a surgeon. And there will and this will also include supplies with stimulants and restoratives. There will also be first aid stations set up in each dining saloon, and each class will have a first aid station as well. Hey, another great step towards being prepared for the unexpected. Captain Rostron doesn't know, might not know as of right now, how many passengers he, he could be dealing with who have um, various medical conditions. Who, who let alone could be suffering from hypothermia because it is cold outside, folks. I mean, where Titanic struck the iceberg, it was below freezing, at least 24 degrees. So if for some reason there are not enough lifeboats and all of a sudden people start taking the passengers who didn't who weren't able to get board onto a lifeboat have end up taking matters into their own hands by jumping off the ship, they're going to get exposed to that cold water to where it's going to stab them so intensely to where if if help doesn't come in enough time, they could succumb to the um, frigid waters and die from hypothermia. Captain Rostron advised his chief steward, Henry Hughes, to call out every crewman available for what lied ahead. In other words, this is a, a rescue mission for the ages. Beverages from coffee, tea, brandy to whiskey, along with food such as soup, were to be ready, readily available for all rescued passengers. The smoking room, including the lounge and the library rooms, were all to be turned over as dormitories for Titanic survivors. 
Carpathia Steerage, a.k.a. for third-class passengers, would all get grouped together, whereas the remaining extra space would be turned over to Titanic's third-class passengers. I tell you, you know, there's no, there was no such thing as FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, back in 1912, but if there had been a FEMA back then, Arthur Rostron would have been the perfect director for the agency. It almost, I mean, he's acting as if he is his own uh, FEMA director. But I tell you, he is going above and beyond to prepare for the unexpected. In my opinion, does he deserve every um, award for his um, acts of bravery and for his acts of preparation for, um, for a, a disaster that he's already been made aware of? With uh, with regards to the world's most um, famed ship that was claimed to be unsinkable, nothing could happen, and now all of a sudden the world's most famed ship is in the fight for her own life. Yes, uh, Captain Rostron, uh, to me, should should be uh, well deserved of uh, recognition, and that here he, here he and his crew are 58 miles away, and now they have to and they are pressed for time. But they are laying everything on the line and not leaving anything on the table to chance. And you know what? 58 miles away, yes, there are a lot of odds against them. But I'd rather take those odds against me and make every valiant effort there, what there is rather than just sit back and say, well, somebody else will take care of the problem and we don't have to worry about it. Because as I said, as I said earlier, and, I say it, and I'll say it again, for all we know, there could be ships 30 miles away from Titanic. But are there wireless operators on? We don't know. Because, remember, 1912, I know I've already said it twice, I'm going to say it for a third time. There are no laws on the books that make it mandatory for wireless operators to have their headsets on 24-7. So it does sound like to me that it could very well take a tragedy for, to where over time, or not just over time, but to where in the aftermath of a tragedy that perhaps the laws will change to where sooner than later, where wireless operators will have to be on the headsets 24-7, which would include uh, crew personnel taking shifts to prevent such a tragedy from happening again. Did uh, Captain Rostron demand that his crew keep quiet about what they already knew regarding Titanic? Yes, the last thing Captain Rostron and his crew needed were for their own passengers to overhear sensitive information where they could take it upon themselves and asking crewmen for additional information or even worse, spreading the news to countless others, a.k.a. passengers, which would lead to greater panic, chaos, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't um, Titanic's wireless operator Jack Phillips receive um, wireless um, messages sent from um, passengers aboard the Carpathia? Yes. So it is fair to say that there are passengers aboard Carpathia who know of um, friends aboard Titanic. I don't know with regards to what class and all that first, second, or third, but the bottom line is is that if these people aboard Carpathia, passengers knew immediately what had happened, they would, for one, they would have every right to be 
in a panicky uh, state about it. But if more passengers all of a sudden hear about this, it's going to cause frenzy, enough of a frenzy to where Captain Roster and his crew might not be able to keep the situation at bay to where they might be the ones losing control of everything in front of them. Captain Rostron and the crew assigned stewards to be stationed along every passage where they would oversee all curious onlookers. And by doing so, they would be able to forward these uh, curious onlookers back to their cabins. Captain Rostron assigned an inspector, a master-at-arms, and multiple stewards that were all sent down into steerage to keep all steerage passengers under control given they would have to make a transition that was very unexpected. Think about it, folks. The last thing Captain Rostron isn't going to do is he's not going to go on the loud comm and say, uh, third-class passengers, I have some uh, breaking news to tell you all. You all are going to be at, I'm asking you all to, to, um, to pack up your belongings and leave your rooms right away until further notice. That's going to cause a lot of... Um, uneasiness because it's one it would been one thing for him to have done something like that but now then he could be faced with a barrage of 20 questions or more with the passengers saying why are you doing this why are you doing this to us in the middle of the night where are we going to go and how long are we going to be confined to new quarters there again you know as the saying goes the less said the better but the bottom line is, is that Captain Rostron and his crew need to be able to function with little chaos as possible. Despite reviewing everything that had been issued, Captain Rostron did go as far as posting extra lookouts, that is, watchmen, given he didn't want Carpathia to meet the same fate that had already now been unraveling with Titanic. Rostron sent an extra man into the crow's nest, including the placement of two lookouts around the bow, extra lookouts on both bridge wings. Our final question for this uh, podcast segment to part one is the following. Did the British Board of Trade regulate on, such, on matters such as lifeboats? Uh, the answer is yes, and I know many of you were wondering how in the world could there only have been 20 lifeboats, given Titanic has over 2,000 passengers? And knowing that if something went wrong with Titanic, and knowing that she has over 2,000 passengers, 20 lifeboats, the best likelihood that half would be able to get onto lifeboats, and the other half would be left perhaps to die if help didn't come right away? So why is it that these why is it that the British Board of Trade placed such um, complex strategies behind lifeboat, behind lifeboat requirements of British vessels? Well, for one, given, for one, the Titanic was over 10,000 tons. But give, secondly, given Titanic was over 10,000 tons, she was required to have 16 lifeboats with a space for 550 and have extra boats that would result in 75% lifeboat capacity for all aboard her. So, for Titanic, this meant lifeboat seating for 962 people total. 
In other words, the Titanic may have never been intended, folks, to have accommodated up to 2,200 passengers. I mean, yes, she could have filled at max 2,400, but it was never intended for her to... It was never intended for her for, for her maiden voyage to be as high as over 2,000. Well, if the White Star Line knew that there was going to be just over 2,000 people aboard Titanic, could, shouldn't they have made some um, preparations ahead of time or, or uh, modifications ahead of time to have added, say, another four to six lifeboats? Now, I don't know if that would have perhaps saved everybody but if we had, but if, but if the White Star Line had uh, consulted with the British Board of Trade, and they had made a compromise that said, okay, yes, we could perhaps, we could definitely find the room to add another four or six lifeboats, then perhaps the great, perhaps the overall number of lives would have been reduced. Perhaps the overall loss in lives would have been reduced. One has to wonder. One has to ponder. There are a lot of what-ifs. That was just one of the many of uh, what-ifs. But given that Titanic had 2,207 people on board, half of those people would die. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, folks, in this uh, podcast uh, segment. When I'm on the air again next, we'll be uh, talking more about, uh, about the Titanic of course, we'll certainly be talking more about the Titanic, but we will be talking, I should say, uh, part two of um, what is called SOS. And what is SOS? Save our ship. That part we will be talking about. So, again, thank you for your time, as always. And um, I know when I was on the air last, uh, I had mentioned about the uh, sinking of the, um, or the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, yesterday marked the 47th anniversary of the uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking on Lake Superior. Of course, you know, only 29 people lost their lives, but of course the loss of 29 men hit many of the uh, communities along the Great Lakes, most notably Superior, um, Erie, uh, Michigan, uh, Huron. It hit all those communities very hard because... Um, a lot of um, businesses along the Great Lakes, even to this day, are dependent upon um, commercial shipping for um, for goods to be transported from uh, point A to point B along Great Lakes waters. And, of course, the Fitzgerald herself was like the Titanic of the Great Lakes. When she was built in 1958, in 1957, and her first uh, voyage was in September of 58, she was 729 feet long, making her at the time the largest uh, vessel along the Great Lakes. And I kid you not, people, um, um, drivers would pull over to the side of, bridge, of the bridge, get out, and watch the Fitzgerald go by. She, she truly was the Titanic of the Great Lakes. She just, had a, she just had that persona about her. And when she sunk, a part of many other people's... Um, what do you call it, a part of many other people's um, thoughts, identity, went with her as well, because so many people identified with the Fitzgerald. Nobody deemed the Fitzgerald unsinkable, it's just that she had that persona and mist to her. Just like how people, you know, resonate with Titanic. 
given that she was the ship of many, uh, the ship of dreams, but yet all of that was changed forever. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. And wherever you all may live, take care for now and stay safe.